Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song. We really do appreciate your work, Walter. And if any of you out there are interested in Walter's work, WalterParks.com is a good place to go. You can always reach out to me, JamesNave.com. You can find me through my website on the contact section there. And I would love to hear from you. What is your story? What are you up to out there in the field? And if you'd like to join me live on Zoom, Saturday mornings I host with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, a gathering on Zoom. It's a writing session for people who just like to get together and generate a little content. So it's called Imaginative Storm Writing Session or Imaginative Storm Prompt of the Week. And if you'd like to do a little creative writing on Saturday morning, you're more than welcome to join us. The door's open to everyone. And thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM, WPVMFM.org, if you'd like to know more about community radio. I'm grateful to Davine because she allows the contributors to create shows like this and disseminate them all over the country by way of other platforms like Audioport and PRX, Public Radio Exchange. If you've been listening to this show in the past, you know I often have many different kinds of guests on the show, and then sometimes you also know that I'll do a little section called Walking the Rim Road, and occasionally I will do another section, like I'm doing today, which is At the Desk. And the reason why I'm going solo today and having you really as my listening guest is because I've been thinking a fair amount about so many of the interviews that I've enjoyed participating in over the last number of years and the themes in the interviews as you know if you've been listening the themes are politics culture poetry creativity writing or just general subjects that come up during the conversation that lead us down different paths and like robert frost says in his poem the road not taken way leads on to way And occasionally along the way, I've taken the opportunity to do a solo show like Walking the Rim Road or just sitting at my desk going solo, as I'm doing now. Another theme that often comes up in this show is storytelling. And the reason storytelling comes up a lot for me is because the idea of storytelling underpins much of what I do in the world of language exploration. When you think about it, at the end of the, the end of the day, at the end of a conversation, or even the end of your thought beats, you have some kind of story unfolding. And I've always appreciated storytelling. I, I remember years ago, my my grandmother, who was a, a learned woman from Apex, North Carolina, she came to the mountains of Western North Carolina in believe it or not, 1916. She traveled to Murphy, North Carolina, where she taught school as a young woman. She had graduated from Meredith College, which was unusual for 
Women back then, unusual for most people to graduate from college. My grandmother, named Roberta, did that, and she traveled to to Murphy, as I said, and, and set up shop as a school teacher. And the reason I know this is because I have one of her small journals left over from that time, and she jotted down her doubts and dreams, as any young person would. My grandmother did meet her husband there in Murphy, Don Hyatt, and she married and had five children. Unfortunately, her husband died, and after his death, my grandmother, Roberta, moved to Asheville, where she took a job at the health department, and she worked that job all the way to her retirement. So when I came on the scene in the 1950s, my grandmother was fully employed, and all of her children were grown and had children, and I was one of the grandchildren, and that's how I got to know her. Now, the reason I bring my grandmother, Roberta, up is because of storytelling. Not only did Roberta work at the health department, she was also a wonderful storyteller and a poet, and in fact, I still have her poetry book, The Heart Aroused, which she published when I was a senior in high school. As I said, she was a wonderful storyteller, and she would always weave stories about people living far away, over the mountains, if you will, with magical powers, and they would come and weave spells and take you away to some distant imaginative land, a bit like Alice in Wonderland, I suppose. As a boy, listening to all of those stories, I was really enthralled by the idea of where my imagination could take me. So it would be fair to say that my grandmother, Roberta, planted the seeds that eventually carried me deeper and deeper into the idea of having storytelling and language be a big part of my life. I bring this story up not to romanticize my grandmother. We lived rather regular lives in western North Carolina. My father worked for the power company and my mother was a nurse and Roberta, my grandmother, worked for the health department and on my father's side, my grandmother on my father's side, she stayed at home and kept the house and my grandfather, he worked at the Farmers Federation, which was a, a co-op for farmers way back in the day. And if you live in Asheville now, you will know the building my grandfather worked in, which was called the Farmers Federation. That building is where the wedge brewing company is along the railroad tracks in the river arts district and the building is full of artists i imagine all those farmers coming and going back when i was growing up would likely have never imagined that Asheville would evolve into such a mature arts scene as it is today and yet there you go every place changes evolves moves in different directions over the years the reason i'm bringing all this up today on this show is not so much to romanticize my childhood and to think back on the wonderful days of of youth um, not all of my days were wonderful i had a lot of bumpy roads along the way in in my youth like everybody else does or at least a, a lot of people do maybe you're one of the lucky ones maybe you don't have a story about bumpy roads but i'll bet if you've lived any kind of life at all you've turn corners and hit things like trees, metaphorically speaking, that you wished you maybe could have avoided. I bring this up to say that we all have stories to tell, and we can express those stories in, in many, many different ways. And there's a good chance that if you have some 
urgency inside of your psychology, inside of your imagination to tell a story or express yourself creatively, that urge, urgency, if you will, has been there all along. I remember back when I was in high school, I was a terrible, terrible student. The only A I ever got was when I made a Tesla coil in the in the tenth grade in the science fair and the teacher promised that if you won a ribbon in the science fair with your science project you would get an A for the the six weeks. So I threw myself into building the Tesla coil and if you've ever seen some of these crazy old black and white sci-fi movies you might remember the electricity shooting around the room and all kinds of crazy wild and unusual patterns well, those little boats of electricity shooting around the room were produced by a Tesla coil. And what makes a Tesla coil interesting from an electricity point of view, the, the bolts of, of electricity, tiny little bolts of lightning flying around the room, they have no voltage in them. So if you're hit by one of the little bolts of lightning that comes from a Tesla coil, you will not get a shock, which indeed turned out to be the case when I built my Tesla coil. So I took the Tesla coil to the classroom and put it in the back and stored it there and I have to say I did a fairly good job of building my Tesla coil. I also have to admit that my father, who was a, a World War II veteran, he had served for the duration as they said, which meant once you were drafted in you couldn't get out till the thing was over. And he participated in the Battle of the Bulge and uh, other battles throughout the campaign and his specialty was electricity. He was in communication. So thus his skill around mentoring me with my Tesla coil. And the Tesla coil was a nice looking proposition, I have to say. And when I took it to the classroom, I could tell the teacher didn't believe I'd made the Tesla coil. I think the teacher thought my father did it for me. And in fact, he did help. It was a father-son kind of collaboration, which I enjoyed. And I expect my father did as well, or at least he, he seemed to get a kick out of helping me build the Tesla coil. And even though my father did help me, I did the bulk of the work myself. And remember to this day how much pleasure I got out of making, making the object and putting all the pieces together. So the teacher just really didn't believe me, but he couldn't do anything about it. So he said, well, that's a nice looking project you have there. Why don't you put it in the back and store it until the science fair comes along, which was a couple of days later. The next day I came to the storage room to look at my Tesla coil and somebody had knocked a board over on the Tesla coil and the reason why this is an important part of the story is because when you make a Tesla coil you have to wrap very thin wires around and around and around, coil them around studs that will hold them so that they they operate as the the generator almost, if you will, for the for the electrical charge. So here my poor Tesla coil sat in the corner with the board on it and the board had ripped all the wires off and I was completely undone by it. 
So I reported it to the teacher, and he says, well, I guess you'll just have to fix it before the science fair. He thought he had me. He didn't think I would be able to fix it. Well, I shrugged my shoulders, and I had learned well how to put my Tesla coil together. So I started working on it, and I got the soldering iron out and some more copper wire, and I wrapped the wire around the Tesla coil, and I glued the pieces back that needed to be glued back and, and got, the, got the thing erect again. And it wasn't quite as attractive as it was when I first brought it into the classroom. Even so, I plugged it in, and the thing worked, and the little bolts of lightning spewed out the top, and all was well in the kingdom, so I managed to take it up to the gymnasium where the science fair was happening and I put my little booth together and I had my explanations written out I guess I I wrote them out in longhand so I think it was actually a rather nice presentation and guess what I, I won a blue ribbon I got the first place prize because of my Tesla coil which meant I got an A in the biology class for the six weeks which brought my rather mediocre grade up to something that was respectable likely it averaged out to be a C so I wasn't a really great student and when I look back on my high school career I think the reason I wasn't a, a great student was because I was just curious about all the things that were going on around me and what I like to do I like to sit and talk to people and I like to have conversations and I, ha I like to go out and explore and drive around in my car and and see what would happen next I'm saying all this because you may have had a similar experience and I suspect you have stories like I have that you could tell as well so why is this so important to now to storytelling to language one reason it's important is to say you don't have to be a stellar language arts student to become a storyteller whatever experiences you have are worthy of the stories you tell Another reason it's important, as I sit here at my desk, remembering this story, I'm smiling because I haven't thought about that Tesla coil in years. And I'll bet there are stories that you maybe haven't thought about in years. Delightful stories that you can tell that will make you smile, like me telling you the Tesla coil story just made me smile. You probably already know the term Tesla because it now applies to the electric car that is so popular which of course was named after the inventor of the Tesla coil Nikolai Tesla and he invented the Tesla coil in 1891 and I remember once when I was living in New York City and I was at a reception after a TEDx event someone at the reception which was way up in a tall tall building pointed over to the New Yorker building, or at least it was the building that had New Yorker written on it. Maybe it wasn't the current New Yorker building, but it was where the New Yorker magazine had been at one time. And the fellow said, you see that floor there right under the New Yorker sign? That's where Nikolai Tesla died. And as it turned out, even though Nikolai Tesla's name now is the branded name for the Tesla car. The man died in poverty, almost unrecognized, until much later in the 60s when people began to recognize him again and his reputation became renovated. So my 
little foray into the Tesla coil puts me into a, a nice little story that I have somewhat discovered while I'm telling it to you right now. This is why your stories are so important, because you may think you know everything there is to know about all of those stories that you have stored in your mind. Of course you know that's not true. How could any of us know everything there is to know about a story? One of the values of storytelling, like my little Tesla story and the thing falling over on it in the science class and me getting my blue ribbon, is when you tell these personal stories, they seem to always reward you with more and more information. And I think it's important for all of us to to remember that our lives have value no matter where we sit or what we've done or where we're headed. I remember I was doing a storytelling workshop with Rosemary Watola Traumer, and we were in a little town in Colorado called Carbondale. And we were at the Carbondale Library. It was a day-long workshop on storytelling. Rosemary opened the storytelling workshop with a few comments of, about how storytelling works, practical things, and then she tossed it over to me. And I asked the most obvious question, does anybody in the room have a story they would like to tell? And I could tell by the way people held back a bit that they weren't quite sure what to do. So I reframed the question, and I was headed in this direction anyway. So instead of saying, do you have a story you would like to tell? I said, can anybody tell me the story of what happened to you from the time you got up this morning until the time you arrived at the library for this workshop? A little aside here. If you've ever been a teacher, or if you've ever facilitated any workshops, you know the key to getting things moving is asking the right question. Well, that turned out to be the right question because I knew everybody could tell the story of getting up, making a cup of coffee, putting their notes in a in a sack and getting in their car, driving to, to the workshop. Maybe they stop at a red light on the way and they get there on time or a little late or whatever. And so that's exactly what happened. Everybody raised their hand and said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And I called on the first person. And that first person told a story that had the basic spine that you might expect. I woke up, I made my coffee, I put my clothes on, did whatever I did, and came to the workshop. But what happened was, even though everybody was telling the same story, people started to veer off to asides. One person told about the favorite drive she took every morning and how the drive along the way changed, the scenery changed, and how on her way to the workshop, since she left a little early, she had time to stop and look at the river and just admire the view. So she told us all about the river. And then another person told us about how nervous he was all the time. And he admitted that he has some kind of nervous condition that terrified him in ways that he simply couldn't explain, but he had driven to the workshop anyway. And although he was terrified and almost in a cold sweat, he was still there to do what he needed to do. And this went on and on all the way around the room. 
and for the rest of the day people were very loose and they told all kinds of stories not unlike my story of building the tesla coil which took me to new york and the room where nikolai tesla died and brought me around to the stories in carbondale somehow it all weaves together and there's some kind of imaginative magical sparkle that happens when you just let yourself drop into those simple propositions those simple stories that that you can tell so if you're sitting there thinking well maybe i do have a couple of stories i could tell maybe you have one in mind here's a creative writing tip that will help you get into your story think about the story for a second or two get it in your mind and then jot down as many words as you can in a three or four minute time frame or a two minute time frame just words that pop around the story that you are thinking about like I might have written down a chalkboard classroom old shoes copper wires basement nighttime flashing lights those are some of the words I associate with the memories around building the Tesla coil now those words will anchor you in your thinking will anchor you in your story it's called imaginative storming and when you just throw words on the page form takes shape think of it as your imagination dancing with your rational mind and your imagination is leading the dance sparkling along creating all kinds of interesting images and phrases that eventually will form into some kind of story and when you're working along those lines just keep in mind that almost any story will do all it has to do is have a beginning a middle and an end like the stories the people told at the storytelling workshop rosemary and i taught your story could be as immediate as what happened an hour ago or it could reach back into your childhood or other times in your life i mean when you think about it all we have is this moment and everything that's happened before is a memory some of those memories are in the far distant time past and some of your memories were built an hour ago regardless of when the memory happened stories when told or written down or expressed like in this radio show they have a transformational aspect to them they teach you something about yourself maybe give you some insight about people you thought you knew or people who are current in your life maybe good friends you've had in your life for many many years and you're current with them you talk to them every day and yet if you stop to tell a story about them you might discover something in that story that would give you insight into your friends or your loved ones insight that might surprise you and one of the surprises you might discover is that your official story about somebody may not be exactly the story you thought it was after you start to explore the notion of the story and maybe even talk to the people that you are including in your story everybody has great sides to them that often just go unlistened to or unnoticed when i was telling you the story about building the tesla coil i mentioned my father and i told you my father was a world war ii veteran and he fought in the battle of the bulge and was all over europe during a big big conflict time and he was a man who brought the war back home to western north carolina with him 
And when I was growing up there on Pine Lane, where we all lived, my father worked for the power company. There was always electricity in the, in the story when my father was around, and even when my father wasn't around. He was a, a kilowatt man, a, a man of electricity, a man of sparks. And he was also a bit unruly and disturbed by the war, as so many men way back then were. My father, I always suspected, never loved his job at the power company. He did it out of responsibility for the family. What my father loved was playing music, and my father also loved photography, and he loved to dabble in his electronic shop in the basement, where he could go and be by himself, and I imagine work with the war memories as well as work with all the electronic stuff. He built little transistor radios and other things. That explains why he was so happy to help me with the Tesla coil. Now, I bring this story of my father up because when you think of the stories you would like to tell, they often do include close people. And my father, like so many fathers who came back from World War II and fathers who come back from any war, and if not fathers, loved ones. They do bring the war back, and there's a great disruption when it comes to those wartime memories. And it's amazing that so many of the the warriors are able to stand and, and function in, in our culture. God knows we've had plenty of them over the years. Still seems to be, still seems to be the case. Anyway, my father was one of those people. And I experienced all of the disruption as a child that you might expect from a father who was disturbed by the war. He indeed brought the war back home to Pine Lane, where we lived. And even though he built the house in 1953 and worked hard and tried to do everything possible, he had times of disruption, times when he would erupt on my brother and on me. And and it was, well, undesirable. Really, it was just absolutely awful. I won't go into it, but if you've ever had a situation like that, you know what it's like when somebody continues on and on in those unruly disruptions within the context of the family. I bring that up not to say how wounded I was. I bring that up to frame the story around more than one element, more than one dimension of his life. As I said, my father loved to play music and take photographs, but most especially music. He loved to play the fiddle. He played the accordion, he played the fiddle, he played the banjo, he played the harmonica, he played the piano, and the mandolin, and, and, and I don't know what else he played, but he, he loved most especially to play his fiddle. And my mother was never a big fan of music. My mother was the one who was there while the music was being played. My mother was a fan of reading. Reading was her kind of music. And when she was in the home, she was always there with her books, and she would quote poetry to me. That maybe is another reason why I'm drawn to storytelling. She would say things like, you are a part of all that you have met, yet all experience is an arch 
where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever as you move. And my mother had aspirations for all of her children, and she did believe that we were part of all that we had met, good and bad. My father, on the other hand, loved his music, and he was also very confused by his war memories. So sometimes he would veer off into some dark, dark places, and I am a part of that as much as a part of the the joy of hearing my mother recite Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which is where the line, I am a part of all that I have met, comes from. And my father would go back and forth between explosive moments that would happen once or twice a week and his joy around playing his fiddle, which happened almost every night. So when you think about the balance between the two realities, the, the musical joy that came when he pulled the bow across the strings and then the terrible dark clouds that shadowed him when he went into those memories and my brother and and I were too close to him sometimes to avoid the the fist if you will or the belt or any other form of punishment I've come to think the punishment of course was directed supposedly at us, although we never really did anything. He would just pop out with the idea that we had had some violation and off we would go. And I think the punishment was his way of being punitive with himself for maybe what he did in the war. I really don't know. And I suspect his music was his way of balancing the punishment out into some kind of joy. I always loved the way he played music in the living room. We had a player piano, and the player piano would make music on its own, so that was magical to me as well. I would watch my father play the guitar, and he was a good guitar player, as I said, and also a really great fiddle player, and he would play tunes like Deep Ellum Blues and Lonesome Road Blues and the steel guitar rag and I would watch his fingers move across those strings and think how in the world could anybody manage to do something that miraculous and I always wanted to learn how to play and so one day when I was old enough to hold the guitar he said would you like for me to teach you a chord similar to would you like for me to help you with your Tesla coil so here's the father, my father, reaching out in the warm way. The storm passed, the clouds gone, and he was happy in his own kind of creativity, which was music, of course. And I said, I, I would love to. So he showed me how to put my finger on the first string and make a G chord. And then he showed me a couple of other chords. And then he showed me how to make a little melody. I was never a very good musician when I started out. I couldn't quite hear the tunes in my head, but that didn't really stop me because I just loved holding the guitar and I loved playing it and I loved learning the tunes. I didn't know at the time that learning how to play the guitar and learning how to storytell and learning how to memorize poems and perform them fit in the same arena. I, I didn't understand that. All I wanted to do was match the way my father's fingers moved over the strings. 
And maybe that was my way of balancing my own trauma around the way my father behaved in his darker time. So there was a big contrast there. Even so, he taught me how to play the guitar. And we started that relationship when I was around 12. And I learned how to play all the basic chords, G, D, and A, and C, F, and G, seventh, and a few minors, and I could pick a little bit in between the chords. And so I was the designated rhythm guitar player, and he was the designated fiddle player. He would come home in the evenings after working at the power company, put his black lunchbox down, and say to me, Son, would you like to play a tune or two before supper? And I would say, absolutely, let's do that. I didn't say absolutely. I'd say, yes, Daddy, I'd like to play a tune. So we would go into the living room, and he would take his fiddle off the top of the piano, and I would pick up the old guitar, and we would tune him up, and he would start fiddling tunes like Alabama Jubilee or Orange Blossom Special or Old Joe Clark. These are all Appalachian tunes that you still hear to this day all over the southern highlands. People play them on and on and on. And in fact, my father was considered one of the significant fiddle players of the time, along with Tommy Bell. A musician named David Holt came to Asheville a little later after I was in my 20s. And David was a musical historian, a storyteller, and a fine musician in his own right. He hung around my father's group and collected those musicians. He recorded them and remembered them and talked to them and learned from them. And my father was one of those musicians. And to this day, David Holt and I are still friends because of those long ago times. My father and I played music until I left home when I was 18 or 19. And when I would come back for a visit, he would always say the same thing. You want to play a tune, son? So even though my father would be considered an abusive father because of World War II, and my brother and I considered collateral damage from the war, and indeed it was tough going some of the time, my father also gave me the gift of music. And as time went on, I moved away from home and he and I stopped playing, and I continue to play a little bit on my guitar throughout my life. I will say right now I'm playing it again, and I'm playing it every day, and I'm doing it because I have such fond memories of how my father and I played together when I was young, and he was growing older. Music was the way we communicated, and as I moved away from home, and my father did indeed grow older, and so too did I, I would often come back to visit him. A lot of stuff happened along the way. My father's health in his 60s began to wane a bit, and by the time he arrived in his 70s, he wasn't doing all that well. Many of the members of my family live a long time, but my father drank a fair amount, and I think that was one of the reasons why his health failed him earlier than maybe it should have. Even so, over the years when I came back to visit, I would go see him and we would talk, but we never said much. He would always say to me, hi son, how are you? I would say, well, I'm doing fine. What have you been doing these days? Well, not much. I, I've, I've just been traveling around doing my work. Well, that's very good. I'm glad to hear it. And then I would ask him something like, well, are you still playing music? Oh, yes, I'm still playing my fiddle. I like my fiddle. And I would say something like, well, that's good. I hope everything else is going well. Oh, yeah, it's going great. I, it's it's doing, doing well. I hope you are, too. 
by then we weren't playing any music anymore and we were living our lives and it was a rather predictable visit each time as you might imagine. So by the time I was in my mid-forties his health had declined dramatically. He was actually on dialysis and it was becoming more and more obvious that his life was coming closer and closer to its close. Even so I hesitated to go visit him because it was always such a boring, predictable visit. I didn't have a chip on my shoulder around my father. It's just that I had better things to do. And then one day, when I was visiting Asheville from a trip that I had taken, and I'd taken many trips by that point, I thought, I wonder what would happen if I went to visit my father and instead of saying how are you doing dad instead of him saying well I'm doing okay son I hope you are too what if I interviewed him what if I asked some questions simple questions what if I wrote his answers down while he was watching me write them down so I stopped by to see him he was in his chair not able to walk so much now he was not doing very well and we had the same perfunctory opening hi son how are you and I said well I'm doing fine how about you he said oh I'm doing I'm doing okay I, I I'm getting along all right it's things are things are good and then I said you know I've been coming to see you for years now and it occurred to me recently that I've never really asked you anything about your life what what went on in in your life I said would it be okay if I ask you some questions and he perked up and said well, well yes yeah well sure I, that's no problem his face became more animated his eyes brightened a little bit it was almost as if I'd waved a magic wand over him and I guess when you ask someone to tell you about their story it in a way is like waving a magic wand so I said well could you tell me about what it was like when you were in high school and he smiled and he said oh you know I had a terrible time in high school because I was not able to read and and I was held back a grade and I was always felt bad about being held back a grade but you know growing up in Chucky Tennessee around where all our family came from was just great in the summertime. I used to go skinny dipping with my my friends and we would go down to the Nolachucky River and we would jump in and it, it was just, the river was cool and it was fantastic and I just loved skinny dipping. Well, at this point, my father's face was shining. He might as well have been 18 or 17 years old again. Just telling this story, remembering it with such fond feelings. And then I said, well, did you have a girlfriend? And he said, oh, I did. Her name was Inez. I just thought Inez was the greatest girlfriend I could have ever had. And he went on and on and on about Inez. And then he started to tell me about how his father came over the mountain to Asheville and they settled in Asheville and that's when my grandfather, his father, started working at the Farmers Federation that now houses the Wedge Brewing Company in the River Arts District in modern Asheville. So my grandfather worked at the Farmers Federation and my father enrolled in high school, which at the time was called Lee Edwards High School. So even though my father was held back a couple of years 
or one or two years, I don't remember. He did manage to make it through high school, and and I don't know if he enjoyed it or not. I think he was still a bit ashamed not being able to read. But he made it through high school, and he was good at math and good at electronics. And he got a job at Carolina Power and Light Company straight out of high school. That was a couple of years before World War II started, and when the war came, he was drafted like so many, many, many men and off he went to war. He spent time in Greenland, and then he was shipped over to the the war zones in Europe, in France, and all, all the way into Germany, the Battle of the Bulge, and all of that. So I was talking to him that afternoon, and he was telling all of these wonderful stories about being in high school and going to the high school dance, and his skinny dipping in the creek, and all these pranks they pulled and just remembering, remembering these fabulous stories. And somewhere along the way I said, well, tell me about the war. Do you have any stories you can tell me about the war? And his face changed again and his memories moved into another arena, much more brutal. And the reason I know it was brutal was because, as I said earlier, my father was a photographer and he took lots of photos in World War II. And I know that because when I was growing up, I would sneak down into his workroom and open a cigar box and look at the photos he had hidden in the cigar box. And there was one photo of a, a German officer or a German soldier frozen against a tree in the dead of winter in Germany. And many photos of the days when the Allied soldiers were liberating the Nazi prison camps. Of course, my father never talked about any of that. I only knew it because I'd seen those photos. So that day, as he was talking about the war, his face changed again. And he started to tell me about one day when he was in the midst of all of this horror, he came upon a deserted house. And in that house, which was ramshackled and ruined by war, he spotted a fiddle case on a mantle. My father already knew how to play the fiddle because he had learned before the war. So when he saw that fiddle case on the mantle, he told me, I, I reached up, and when I touched it, I could feel the heft, and I knew there was a fiddle in there. And the house was deserted. There was nobody there. And I opened up the case, and there was this beautiful fiddle. I imagine you could also have fairly called it a violin, but he called it a fiddle because he was a fiddle player. And he smiled as he told me this story, and he said, I, I took that fiddle out and I held it in my hands and then I put it back in its case and I locked the case down I put the fiddle under my arm and I took it with me and I don't remember if he said I liberated it from the mantle or not but I imagine he was thinking well if I don't take this fiddle somebody else will take it or it will be destroyed and it will fall into disrepair and so he took the fiddle and then he told me he said I brought that fiddle back from World War II I carried it all the way home and I've been playing that fiddle ever since and that fiddle was still there in his house when he was telling me that story and that was the same fiddle he had when I was a little boy watching him play the guitar thinking gosh I would love to learn how to play the guitar I want to play deep ellen blues or steel guitar rag just so my fingers will move like my father's and when he finally taught me the guitar he would play that fiddle he brought back from Germany, and I would play the guitar, and we would 
make music, as he would say. You want to go make some music this afternoon, son, before supper? And I would say, yeah, I, I surely would like to do that. So that afternoon, my father and I sat there in his living room, I in my mid-forties, he in his mid-seventies. We had a genuine conversation, a transformational conversation. He told stories of skinny dipping and Inez and going to high school and a little bit of the war, most especially the story of getting the fiddle off the mantle in Germany and bringing it back and playing it. He continued to play with Tommy Bell for years and years and years. So those fellows never stopped playing, and in some ways neither did I. That afternoon, when I left my father's house, walked out the front door after I said, thank you so much for telling your stories, and he said, I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad that I could tell you. It's as if nobody had ever asked him before. So he was able to tell me something he had never said before, and I was able to hear something I never thought I would ever hear. And I walked out that door and I thought, I'm going to start coming back and I'm going to ask my father all kinds of questions. I know the questions I would like to ask. I know exactly what I want to know. He has so much to tell and I have all the time in the world to listen. And I left that house that afternoon feeling complete like we had played a, a good session of music, and in a sense, we had been singing to each other. And I went away thinking, now, that's, that's what it's all about. And about a month later, I had been on yet another trip, and I came back and went to my sister's house, and I was feeling pretty good, getting ready to go over and visit my father. And I walked through the door, and my sister came out and she smiled at me and said, I have something to tell you. And I said, well, what is that? She said, our daddy died last night, yesterday afternoon, really. He went to the hospital and he, he, died, he died last night. And I felt something go out of the, out of the room. I could still hear the music. Lonesome Pine Special, Old Joe Clark, Alabama Jubilee, Orange Blossom Special. I played rhythm guitar. I was the I was the train coming down the tracks and he also played Listen to the Mockingbird and he could make the fiddle sound like a mockingbird. So when my sister told me your father died last night or yesterday afternoon, I felt an emptiness. I really didn't quite know what to feel. And I went away thinking, gosh, I wish I had asked him those questions earlier. I'm so sorry I didn't. And yet I felt good that I had had that moment with him that time. And so this story evolves and evolves in my head as I'm telling it to you now, today, here, sitting at my desk. I'm remembering things I'd never thought of before as I tell this story. And and here's the the transformation. Here's the nub of it, the the essence of it. I had two choices in the way I told you this story. I could have chosen to tell the story of how my father was unruly and abusive and confused and how he took it out on my brother and me. And I did tell you that. You do know that. Or the other choice, of course, was to talk about the music, which I choose to do, I chose to do, 
And that's how I remember him. And by telling the story through the lens of the music rather than the lens of the darker times, there's a sense of forgiveness there. There's a fullness there. There's also an opportunity to express the story in, in ways that have universal appeal. You may have a story that has equal weight. So how can you approach the story that you would like to tell in ways that it will transform you and transform those around you? My transformation was I realized it's possible to forgive my father with great ease. The other transformation in this story was that I carried a an official view of my father for 45 years. He's a wooden man who doesn't like to talk very much. And I, in a sense, blamed that on him. It wasn't my fault that my father didn't like to talk very much. I had plenty to say, and he should listen to me. And that's a little bit of an immature attitude, but maybe there was some, some of that at play. Of course, as soon as I bothered to ask questions and listen, he just completely changed into a different person. Or maybe he didn't change into a different person. That person was always there. Maybe my questions just gave him the permission to allow that person to come out. Now, I will tell you, his father, my grandfather, the man who worked at the Farmers Federation, was of another age. I believe my grandfather was born in 1889, which is 24 years after the Civil War. To put that in a modern time frame, we are now 20 years away from 9-11. And culturally speaking, we're still feeling the repercussions from that terrible event 20 years ago. So you can imagine my grandfather, the one who worked at the Farmers Federation, which was housed in the building that's now in the River Arts District, my grandfather likely was collateral damage from the Civil War in a sense. Perhaps his uncles who fought in the Civil War carried the war back to him. We will never know that. But these legacy points get passed on and on. So in all fairness to my father, one of the reasons why my father maybe was as wooden as he was was because he was afraid. Maybe he had never been allowed to speak up and tell his story. Thus the music, thus the photography. Of course, I'm speculating about why my father was quiet and never carried on much of a conversation. I don't know if he was squelched or not. I do know this. When I started to ask my father questions and showed a great interest in what he had to say and listened and wrote it down, he absolutely loved it. And even though I was not able to go back and ask any more questions, I did carry away this story that I've just told you. And it has been with me ever since and I'm grateful that I was able to have that experience with him and I encourage you to do the same with those around you the people you think you know the most are the ones who will be the happiest to open up to you and let you know them more than you know them now and the questions can be really simple very open-ended like Tell me the story of when you got up this morning and what have you done today and what's really important for you right now and why are you so excited about what's coming up in the next couple of days or well, what do you have planned for this weekend? Tell me about a time 
when you went to a dance and had a good time? Questions like that, any kind of version of those. And I, I'll bet you, you will be very pleased at how people respond to you when you ask those questions. I've been doing this radio show now for almost four years, maybe a little longer, and I've had a lot of wonderful guests on this show. And occasionally, as I said earlier at the very beginning of the show, I sometimes like to go solo, and in a sense I'm, I'm interviewing my own story, because I have no idea what's going to come out in these stories. I have a little sense of it, but I really don't know. I didn't know I was going to tell you the story of the Tesla, nor did I have any idea I would mention being on the rooftop in New York, looking at Tesla's room in the New Yorker building, or didn't really know if I was going to tell you the story of my father and, and the fiddle. And so, on that note, I would like to close with a poem I wrote about my father. And I wrote it about a time when I was in New York taking acting classes at Susan Batson's studio. I'm not an actor, and yet I do have great admiration for people who can act and who do act. I was in the studio not to be an actor, just to loosen up, shake my imagination up a bit, get some more material so I could have a broader view of things. As I said earlier, from the imaginative storm to the creative form, I was letting my imaginative mind dance with my rational mind. So what I'd like to do now is, um, is read a poem for you. And the title of the poem, In the Acting Class, is also the opening line of the poem as well. In the acting class, I imagined my father, all bones now. The wind watches his grave. I placed him in front of me, brushed his hair, stroked his face, weathered from years of working at the power company. When storms ripped the lines down, he had strapped his climbing hooks around his legs, dig up telephone poles, swing with high voltage until electricity flowed again. In the acting class, I touched his ears his jaw, his chin. His breath smelled like peaches. Every night when I was young, he played his fiddle, certain of the notes. His strings were mockingbirds and trained songs. I pressed my thumbs into his shoulders. He blinked. I slid my hands down his arms. His fingers clenched, then released like large paws resting on my palms. That was in the acting class. And on that note, I'd like to thank you ever so much for listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Oh, thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song. I'd like to thank my father for his theme songs, all those songs he taught me. Here, here's to you, Dad, wherever you are. 
Uh, thank you, Davine Dial, for all the work you do at WPVM-FM. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. It's a good place to good place to start. And if you'd like to join my writing group on Saturday morning, live at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, I would love to have you. I gather with a group of people, and we just generate material. Poetry like the poem I read to you in the acting class. And it's, it's, it's good fun. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to come test it out. You don't even have to do anything. You can just be there and enjoy yourself. We would be glad to have you and like to get to know you better, and that's a good way to do it. And finally, thank you ever so much for listening to my story, and I appreciate you tuning in, and I appreciate your time and attention. And until next time, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Well, I ain't gonna be treated this way.